Hey folks, today we're hearing from Lisa Thompson about uh, climbing the seven summits of the world. Yes, the seven summits. And Lisa was not someone who had a mountaineering background growing up. She grew up in the Midwest. um, And she's going to tell us about how she got into mountaineering and climbing and what the seven summits was like, but that she wouldn't even consider as her biggest achievement. She would consider the very difficult mountain, notoriously known as the deadliest mountain in the world, K2, as probably being the biggest challenge of her life for a very special uh, reason. And also, uh, the anticlimactic finish of this experience, you'll have to listen to the episode to hear more. Uh, but thanks to our sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition, for sponsoring this episode. You can hear about more about them later. But they're huge supporters of the podcast, and I'd appreciate it if you used our code GNARLYADVENTURE15 for 15% off your order uh, at their website. Gnarly Nutrition helps you get out there and have adventures. But let's go ahead and jump into Lisa's story and hear about it and. Before we do, she also has a book that is coming out in January, so we're kind of an early jump on it, but her book is going to be called Finding Elevation. You can learn more about it at her website, lisaclimbs.com, and more about her training and coaching plans for climbing and for all kinds of athletes at alpineathletics.net. All right, folks. Today, you heard a little bit about Lisa's story in the intro, but we have her here now to talk. Lisa Thompson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mason. I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited as well. And so we talked a little bit about it before I started recording, but where are you coming from and where is home for you? If those aren't the same places. Uh, So today, those are the same places. (laughs) I live in Seattle, which is where I am today. And it's actually nice and sunny here, which is a rare thing. Oh, man. Yeah. So the the old adage is true. I I hear different things from different people. It's not as bad as people say, or it is as bad or worse. I think it depends on your perspective. I find that people... So I'm not native to the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in central Illinois. And... I really love seasons. I love extremes in temperature and in weather. And Seattle is just so temperate. So people, I think, who grew up here love that. They love the gray days and they love this semi-constant drizzle, especially in the winter. But I just really crave sunshine and heat. So I'm not always always my favorite place to be, especially in the wintertime. Oh, I can imagine. Well, that's a a great time to come down here. I live in Florida, of all places. Not not a (laughs) hot hot and sunny today, that's for sure, (laughs) as it is most days. But um, yeah, yeah, I want to know how, I know you've told this story many times, but I'd love to hear, you're not native to Seattle, you're native to the Midwest. How did you go from the Midwest to for, you know, being a mountaineer, but but getting to Seattle first and being surrounded by that. Because I'll be honest, a lot of people on this show and a lot of adventurers are from places, myself included, a place that isn't considered an adventure hub, you know? Yeah, I didn't grow up around adventure, really. You know, my, we had a pretty, my sister and, and I had a pretty sort of normal suburban upbringing. We, you know, our vacations were like, we'd drive to like the Indiana Zoo or something. Mm. I mean, we, I didn't grow up in an adventurous family. Um, but I loved the outdoors. Even when I was a kid, I loved climbing trees and making up games outside. And, 
um, what brought me to the Pacific Northwest was really work. And I had worked for, at the time I was working for Hewlett Packard um, and that sort of morphed into Phillips Healthcare and that brought me to the Pacific Northwest. But I had experienced it a little bit as a kid because my aunt and uncle live in the North Central Cascades in a tiny little town called Winthrop. And so I used to come out here in the summer um, to spend a few weeks with them. And I remember seeing mountains for the first time and just being like, what? Like, like it's just so surreal when all you've seen as a kid are the flatlands of the Midwest and cornfields, which have their own sort of beauty and awe, I think. But seeing something just so huge and permanent like a mountain as a kid really had a big impact on me. And so I sort of intended to always get back here. Um, and thankfully, you know, that I could do that through work later in life. What was there the thought with the job that I'm going to have access to this stuff now? Like, like it was that a big part of totally. it or was that just, oh, that's kind of a nice cherry on top? No, it totally was. I, I think that there was just something and, and in part it's because I'm very close to my aunt and uncle who live live nearby. Um, and so part of it was just feeling like I had this chance to be someplace that felt more like home to me and to be with family that was really close and important to me. So that was definitely part of it. Um, but I didn't, you know, I still wasn't into the mountains. I wasn't climbing. I wasn't really exploring in them at that point in my life. And then, you know, I, the part of how I got into mountaineering and into climbing, I like to say that it it was spite that drove me to the mountains. So in that very first job that I took here, I was the only woman at my level. So all my peers were men. Um, you know, even when I looked above and below me on the org chart, not a lot of people who looked like me. And I so badly, I was in my 20s, mid-20s, so badly wanted to fit in with these guys. And, you know, I did sort of the normal, like just work my fingers to the bone always the last one to leave the office and that just wasn't getting their attention. And so they, these guys would go climbing in the Cascades many times a month. And you know, I would hear their stories back in the office about like, you know, crossing rivers and climbing glaciers and, you know, crazy snowstorms. And I was like, that's the way, like, that's the way to get their attention and to allow me to be seen as capable by them. So I had no interest in like, <laughs> like climbing for the sake of climbing. It was really because I wanted them to be, I wanted those guys to see me as competent like them and I wanted to be a part of their group. And so instead of doing like the normal thing, which would have been, hey, climbing, that sounds cool. Can I come with you? I'm sure they would have said yes. I just got frustrated at that point. I really wasn't confident enough to have initiated that conversation. So I just decided I'd go climbing on my own. Again, no idea, like no idea what that meant. And that started with hikes. And then eventually um, I signed up with a local guide company to attempt Rainier in 2008. So you went, you went big off the bat. Because <laughs> I know you started climbing in 2008. So was this yeah. like your first objective? It was my first really big objective. Before that, I had just been, you know, basically hiking in the mountains around Seattle. And, you know, I that's sort of my personality. Like, I'm just going to jump in with both feet. 
and when I look back, I'm fortunate to still be in Seattle and I get to climb Rainier most summers now. And it's a place where I can go for training. And when I look back, again, no idea what I was doing. Like my backpack weighed probably 45 pounds and I weighed like 110 pounds. I remember the pack in particular was this big purple behemoth thing that, you know, of it was probably meant for like overnight camping. It was super heavy just by itself. It probably weighed 10 pounds. <laughs> um, no clue what I was doing at all. And that first attempt of Rainier was not successful. So the weather turned bad at about 11,000 feet. And I remember lying in my tent in the dark, just wondering, like, are we going to go? Are we not going to go? Like what? I I just had no idea what was ahead of me. And it, it terrified me because I didn't know if I was capable of doing it. And I remember being relieved that morning when the guides came around and they're like, you know, the weather's poor, which doesn't make sense to go higher. And we turned around. So I was grateful. I was grateful that something else turned me around and that I didn't have to make that decision on my own. But there was still this just sense of, I got to get more of this. And that need to be capable was a part, was a part of that. And I also found in climbing, you know, this pursuit that is very physical, but also really mental, like thinking back to how I felt lying in that tent. I may have been capable of climbing, but I let myself believe that I wasn't. I let fear get in the way of that. So I learned a lot, but I, you know, I knew I wanted to come back. And then the next year, um, signed up with the same guide company, this is 2009, and did stand on the summit of Rainier. And on that climb, there was just, you know, I remember being, you know, again, in the dark, ascending, probably at about 12,000 feet and just seeing dawn start to break. And, you know, this like light that started to just pierce the horizon and thinking like, these are colors I haven't seen before. This is a place that so few people get to experience. And I get like, I get to be here and I get to feel my body move and be confident in this environment and feel so close to nature. And so that was like, at that point I was hooked. <laughs> like every year after that, I, you know, I still had a corporate job and I still had to train and manage to find the money to pay for it. But every year after that, I picked a climb somewhere else in the world. How, how did the uh, acceptance or, or the dynamic change between you and your coworkers after Rainier? You know, I wish I had a better answer because people, people ask me this a lot. I don't, I think I went back to the office and I was probably very quiet about it. I didn't like probably didn't even tell them that I had done it. And people ask me too, like, what do those guys think now? You know, that, you know, you've made mountaineering such a big part of your life. And, um, I just, don't, they don't probably don't even know to be honest. And, you know, and looking back, like I sort of, I appreciate, um, that scenario and them being a part of what pushed me to the mountains because I have learned so much about myself, gained so much just from being close to our natural environment. And, you know, so I'm grateful today for, for that scenario, but I don't, and, and to be honest, I don't know that they even know. know. Well, let me ask you this then, because <laughs> this is, is going to be interesting. 
is it better that they didn't invite you and you had that spite yes. and kind of that motivation? Because what if they would have invited you? Would you have just been like, oh, yeah, this is fun. This is great. Not my thing, though. You ever think about that? Yeah. Yeah. It's an awesome question because I usually get asked the opposite question. I think if they had asked me, yeah, I would have gone along. I would have been very, you know, in, intent on being as prepared as possible and not being the weakest link. And I probably would have sort of hung out with them a couple of times and then moved on to the next thing. I just don't think it would have resonated with me as much if, if they had asked. I think I really needed that sense of spite and trying to get, you know, this sort of acceptance in order to push me to keep doing it for sure. Yeah. It is funny how the world, <laughs> the world works and we all oh work. Gosh. It's what yes. motivates us. It's not, like you said, not a, lo- not a great long-term plan to rely on spite, but man, it can really be the, can really be the spark that ignites, you know, the wildfire for sure. Oh, sure. Um, guilt, <laughs> spite, yes. uh, anger. Yeah. Uh, those yes. can all be very useful if you put it to good work. Just the other day, I needed to get a new washing machine and it's kind of thing that like it's nagging, but you don't worry about it until it, breaks. <laughs> Finally, it broke one night and I was so mad. I just ripped it out of the wall and drove straight to the store. And I said, I don't care if it costs me a million dollars. I'm getting one this instant. And it got solved in like an hour. And sometimes you need that burst of emotion to to get things yes, done. We do. We totally do you know, get a new washing machine or climb the seven summits. It's all the same, right? It's all the same. No. <laughs> the same emotion. It really is the same emotion. It's just, you know, how we apply it, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Rainier started, you know, it wasn't successful at first. And I want to mm-hmm. actually ask you about that. You were relieved that you didn't have to finish. And I've heard that before. I've experienced that too of where, okay, I don't have to do all this work right now. Um, or it's just kind of, it's a scary experience. You don't know if you can do it. When, when did it set in that you needed to get back? Was it right away? Was it, you know, a week later you're waking up in the morning thinking that was actually really cool. Like what got you back out there? Cause for a lot of people that might've been it. Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. I'd like to introduce you to our newest sponsor, Gnarly Nutrition. I know you've heard about them recently because we've had some guests on recently that credits Gnarly for helping them do the the adventures that we talk about on this show. So uh, Chris Fisher was one who did the Vert Max. He did 400,000 feet of elevation gain in a month. Check out that episode. Uh, That was not too far back. And he credits Gnarly Nutrition for keeping him, his body literally sustained during that time, just packing in the calories. It's amazing nutrition for anyone doing anything adventure, uh, endurance-based, whether that's in the mountains or bikepacking or whatever. It's a great thing to have with you prior to an, uh, an adventure training and also during an adventure. And also Jason Hardrath, who recently did um, the 100 fastest known times. He did 100 mountains in 50 days and just was slamming gnarly nutrition. He also credits Gnarly for essentially keeping his body sustained. And so um, Gnarly Nutrition has been around since 2008. They were born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, uh, and they are committed to educating and inspiring athletes of all levels to be as nutritionally sound as possible. Their nutrition supplements are certified by NSF and have science-backed products free of hormones, free of GMOs, proprietary blends, uh, and nothing artificial. 
So gnarly is going to help you get ready and help you sustain during uh, those huge adventure efforts. So if you're looking for the best tasting and the most trusted sports nutrition brand for any endurance athletes, go to Go Gnarly, and that is G-N-A-R-L-Y dot com, and use the code GnarlyAdventure15 for 15% off. And just, you know, a personal plug here, I love Gnarly. I love the folks there. They're doing such a fantastic job. They have been so great to work with. Uh, they helped provide some products for um, our Journey to 100 film series uh, that we were doing giveaways with at the end of every film screening. So it's been a pleasure to work with them so far. So if you'd like to support the folks that are supporting this show, definitely go visit gonarly.com. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. You're right. And I, you know, I, I get to coach mountaineers now and there's a lot of people who like get their, you know, first taste of big mountain weather, or big mountain climbing, and they're like, I'm good. But for me, it was pretty immediate that I knew I wanted more of it. In fact, it may have been on the descent that day. Like I knew I was going to come back and attempt Rainier again. And, you know, I decided I wanted to do it the very next year. I think I learned, I learned a lot on that climb. And I, I really believe that sometimes we learn more when we're not successful than when we are. And so um, I knew that I needed to get my, I needed to improve my fitness. I needed to be more comfortable carrying heavy weight. I needed to just work on the basics of like being on a rope team and moving on a glacier. And I needed to also be comfortable confronting that fear. You know, I think part of what I was feeling lying in the tent that night was there's just this giant unknown mountain above me. And I don't know if I'm capable of meeting the demands that that mountain is going to ask of me. And so I really went back and I started to focus on all those things. I hired a coach. I started doing more technical climbs, you know, in between so that I could gain just better, you know, comfort wearing crampons and being on a rope team. I took classes, focused on those things. And I, and later, and I really started to dive into the mental part of climbing and, you know, I'm sure we'll talk later, but it's so much so that at some, at one point I had hired a, um, just a coach to help me with that kind of mental improving my mental fitness. So a sports psychologist worked with me before I went to Everest. And I also am like, I love a good project. I love like the idea of organizing and coordinating and putting pieces together and achieving interim goals. And so just about every mountain, including Rainier, that second attempt was like that for me. I had assessed what I didn't know or where I felt my deficiencies were and then set out to improve them. And so grateful that the next year I was successful. And, you know, there's this thing in climbing that we say climbing in good style, which means like you're contributing positively to your team. You've, you know, sort of got, got yourself together. Um, you're, able technically to climb that mountain you have the right skill and experience to be there you're positive and I felt like I climbed that mountain in good style and it just pushed me to want more of it so how quickly or how how did it develop going from okay this was an amazing an amazing experience with Rainier to I'm going to start doing you know more projects around here I assume in the northwest mm -hmm. Pacific mm -hmm. Northwest. When did your sights get set on some of the some of the seven summits? Because I, I don't know if it was like I'm going to do the seven summits or I'm going to focus on one. 
first. And then that's how a lot of times how it happens with folks I've talked to at least. Totally. Yeah. It was not like, I'm going to climb the seven summits. I, one of the things I did in my preparation was just to read every book I could about climbing any mountain. And I remember reading Dick Bass's book about the seven summits and just the adventure and the camaraderie and the, you know, wild places that they visited, he and Rick visited, were just like so cool to me. And I, that was sort of all I knew about climbing. <laughs> it was like, oh, there's this thing. So like you climb the highest mountain on every continent. I don't know if I really want to do that. Like, I don't know if Everest is really ever going to be something that's important to me, but let me just pick one of those mountains and that seems, you know, doable for me. And that'll be the next. And so I chose Elbrus, which is the highest point in Europe. It's in Russia. And I submitted that in 2010. And I still really wasn't committed to doing the seven summits, but I just was like, well, keep, I don't know, climbing a different mountain on every continent. Um, and it's, at some point I felt like, well, so, it, so in 2015, I was diagnosed with breast cancer and, um, you know, I was really starting to like get my stride as a climber. I was feeling confident. I was about to leave for the Himalaya to climb my first mountain there. And, you know, climbing in the Himalaya, I think for any aspiring mountaineer is a really big deal. And it felt very important to me that I was at this point in my climbing career where I could, I had the skill and experience to take on an 8,000 meter peak. And I chose Montesquieu, which is just, it's 8,160 feet or meters, um, because it seemed like a very, you know, sort of an entry level, not very technical 8,000 meter peak. But I, you know, was diagnosed with breast cancer just as I was preparing to climb that mountain. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that, but that experience of realizing how fragile life is and that it can change for you in a second. And that I was, I was 42 years old. I, you know, thought of myself as an athlete. I thought I was doing all the right things to keep myself healthy. And yet there were tumors growing inside of my body. And so that realization led me to think, well, if I'm, if I'm really committed to climbing and to pursuing, you know, these, these mountains and continuing to climb and prove myself and learn about myself, then why wouldn't I climb the highest mountain in the world? So it was really that experience and that realization and the changes related to cancer that sort of sealed for me that I would climb the seven summits. Wow. Yeah, that's... That's I just wild. jumped ahead a lot there. <laughs> no, no, that's that's fine. Yeah, I know it's a big part of it. How much was because we hear this story sometimes of folks battling cancer to to achieve something great. How much was cancer taking out of you? So I was super fortunate that it was um, found early. I was diagnosed with stage one cancer. And my cancer was removed surgically. So I didn't have to have chemotherapy or even radiation. And so I, you know, so grateful um, that, you know, my therapy was much simpler and more straightforward than it is for a lot of women with breast cancer. I think what 
you know, cancer took from me, I think it gave me a lot more than it took, um, really. And, and I couldn't have said that, you know, for a while because I was mad. Um, I wanted it out of me. I want, I didn't want my life to change. I didn't want my body to change. Um, but in retrospect, and I think, you know, like we were saying about learning more from not achieving a goal in the mountains, I learned a lot and I gained a lot from cancer about what I want my life to be like and who I want to surround myself with and how I want to spend my time and, um, the things that I want to prioritize. And so I, you know, not saying this is the right path for everybody, but I, um, I really changed my life. I quit my corporate job. I got a divorce. I sold a lot of things, um, lived in my car for a while and traveled and climbed because that's what I wanted my life to be about. And, you know, that was probably the pendulum swinging very far in one direction. And it sort of settled back, um, you know, to a less extreme position today. I do, you know, I have a house now and a dog and um, started my own company, but it really, cancer just gave me perspective that life is fragile and that it's up to us to define the lives that we will live and the priorities and how we will spend our time. And I didn't want to look back and be like, wow, you know, I should have quit that corporate job sooner. Um, and so it gave me the push, just like spite gave me the push to make those changes. Spite and cancer are, are just the best things that ever happened to you. It seems like um, spite and cancer. That's the title of this episode. No. Um, <laughs> what do you, so do you think we as humans or you personally need something like cancer to make these necessary changes? You know what I'm saying? Cause like yeah. a lot of us, I mean, this is totally different, but a lot of us don't drive as carefully until we almost get in an accident mm -hmm. and then we're like careful for a week or two and then it goes right back to bad habits. Yeah. But yeah. do you think we need this? I think I needed it at that, you know, that point in my life. I also think that there are signs that you're not on the right track, but I wasn't paying attention to them. Um, you know, I was just heads down in work, just, I would call myself a workaholic. Um, I let that create so much stress in my life, just this desire to achieve and be promoted and be accomplished where I worked. And I was in an unhealthy marriage. My husband was an alcoholic. Um, I was drinking more than I should and being unhealthy. And I think I needed cancer to just wake me up and be like, is this how you want to spend your life? Like, are these the priorities you want to have? And it's what I needed to change. And I, I hear that from other cancer survivors too that have, you know, sort of taken stock of their lives after they're diagnosed and reprioritized and made changes. So I'd like to think that now I pay more attention to things. I'm much more in tune with, you know, just my intuition and what my body's telling me and how I'm feeling. But at that point in my life, I really needed to be just slapped in the face by something that was going to make me shift. So it seems that that was what it took for you to start the the project of climbing the seven summits. How did you start to approach it or just at least organize it in your mind? 
one after the other because you said you quit your job and I know these things aren't cheap. So, so what, <laughs> how, what was the plan? How were you planning to tackle this? Well, for a while I had no plan. <laughs> and I literally within three or four months said, quit my job, you know, gotten divorced, sold my house. Um, I didn't have a great plan. And I know that, you know, the people around me, my closest friends and my family were just sort of like, okay, like she's always figured it out. I'm sure she will again, but this seems a little risky. So I, I would say I just sort of felt my way through it really. And how did that feel? How did that feel from your perspective? It felt, it felt scary on the surface, but deep down, um, it felt right. And that was the thing that was hard to explain to friends that, you know, I just had this sense that I was on the right path for me in this moment. And I think that's kind of all you can do in life, right? Is be like, you know, you have a plan or maybe you don't, you have maybe some goal out in the future and you just have to get through it every day by assessing what feels right for you. And so there was a very long time that I kind of lived in that liminal space of like, you know, just day by day, this is what I'm going to do. And things started, you know, things started to become more concrete and I eventually started my own company and I, you know, I actually did have another corporate job at one point because I just felt like I wanted a little more stability financially, but I really, I would say I just felt my way through it. What was first on your list to climb and... How did that go? So I first climbed in terms of the seven summits. I climbed. This was before, I mean, before I had cancer. Um, I climbed Elbrus and Aconcagua, um, Denali, and then I shifted to climbing in the Himalaya. And I would say that first Himalayan peak, um, Montesquieu, which I attempted in 2015, was very pivotal for me. So I had just you know, was still recovering from cancer, really. Um, I knew my body was not 100%. And I just felt this deep need to be in the mountains. And so I remember thinking, like, I'm going to give this my best shot. And we were again turned around by Avalanche, so another climb that wasn't successful. <laughs> um, but I would say, you know, gosh, just going back to that, like, you, I learned sometimes more by not summoning than by summoning it just solidified in me that this is how I want to, this is what I want my life to be about being in the mountains and I'm learning there and, you know, moving there and, and eventually helping other people achieve their mountain goals. So that solidified for me that I would attempt Everest. And I remember coming home and talking to my climbing coach and saying, you know, my goals for Montesquieu had been to use supplemental oxygen and to climb above 8,000 meters because I felt like those were important things for me to test out if I was going to keep climbing bigger and taller mountains. And I didn't achieve either of those things. We turned around at 24,000 feet. And I remember talking to my coach and saying like, but I didn't, I didn't go to Montesquieu. I didn't achieve the things I wanted on Montesquieu. And, you know, he reminded me that sometimes that's you get what you what you get from a mountain is sometimes what you need. It's not always what you set out to achieve or to accomplish there. 
And so it was certainly true of that mountain. And I remember telling him, I think I want to climb Everest. Um, and he's like, we'll get you ready. And I, I said, I reiterated like, but I want to climb it in March. And this, you know, this was in November and I still had multiple surgeries, um, cancer related surgeries, and he had confidence that I could do it. And so that was, you know, for many people, myself included, was really the first just huge, you know, big audacious goal that I took on in the mountains. And that was 2016. Tell us about Everest, because I know you you had to quit your job right before this. It was pretty quick. It was Monteslu, then Mount Baker here in the U.S., and then uh, then Everest <laughs> jumping right in. Yeah. <laughs> what did it? Does it live up to the the lore, or is it is your perspective changed now that you've done it versus when you were looking forward to it? Yeah, great question. I think that you know Everest will always be like for so many people, because it's the tallest mountain in the world, it's where the pinnacle of climbing achievement, mountaineering achievement. And I think that it will always be special to me because it happened so quickly after I was diagnosed with cancer. And um, I became just so tenacious about preparing for that mountain. And so when I summited it, it I just had this immense sense of gratitude that I was able to get to the summit and back safely. But I, I think, you know, Everest is not the hardest mountain in the world to climb. There are many, many other mountains that are more challenging. Um, it, I think it's just, it's very well known, right? Everyone knows. And, and I think people who aren't, um, you know, sort of the average person I meet at a dinner party will say, oh, you climbed Everest. Like that must be like, oh my gosh, how hard was it? And I want to say often that like Everest is, challenging but I climbed this other mountain K2 which is like way more difficult and people want to talk about Everest because that's what people know about so for me it was it was not the most challenging mountain that I've climbed um that distinction goes to K2 and I, I sort of want to leave it with K2 I don't know that after that that summit I really have a desire to take on anything that's more dangerous or challenging um, but for me, Everest was, you know, it just proved to myself what my body was capable of and that I could be strong again and that I could set a big goal and work hard. And with the support of so many people, I could get there again in good style and feel good about my climb. Yes. So, you know, you went you went through the um, initial seven summits, Elbrus 2010, Aconcagua 2011, then uh, Denali and Grand Teton 2012, and just kind of through the years. And then Everest in 2016, you only had one mountain to go for the seven summits, you know, the big, and it was the easiest one in Australia. <laughs> Yet you continued to kind of almost increase the difficulty by staying in Nepal for the next two years uh, or in yeah. the Himalaya the next two years. Tell us about the other two mountains. I, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Tarke Kong? The Tharky King. The Tharky um, King. And then, of course, K2, which you were the second American woman to summit. That's obviously, right. uh, a lot of people know that as the deadliest mountain in the world. Um, I don't know much about Tharky King or Tharky Kong, whatever you just said. <laughs> Tell us about those two. And also, the same question I asked about Everest, does it live up to the hype? How, how does K2 live up to its lore? 
I had, so K2 does for sure. And we'll, I'll dig into that. Um, I had plans to go to K2 in 2017 and the team that I, you know, was invited to climb with just sort of fell apart. People had other priorities or they changed their mind. And so I was sort of left at like two months before the departure date in June of 2017, um, without any climbing partners. <laughs> and, you know, I had searched around with, you know, other um, outfitters that I knew were climbing K2 that season. And, it, you know, just none of them seemed like a good fit or the logistics wouldn't work out. Um, so I shifted gears and climbed Tharky Kang that year instead, which was an unclimbed peak at the time um, in Nepal. And it, you know, it was super fun. I was, you know, made some great friends on that climb that I have um, I'm still friends with and we're, we're organizing now charity climbs together. So it was really, a, it was a fun climb. It was sort of a big, you know, it was a big letdown from being honest, um, because I had trained and was prepared and ready for K2. And then it just didn't happen that year. It just didn't come together for me. Um, and of course, K2 was summoned by another American woman in 2017, Vanessa O'Brien. And that was tough for me. Um, as well. So it was kind of a year of just being bummed out a little bit, but I think looking back, I'm so happy that I summited K2 without the pressure of being the first person, first American woman. Um, I'm glad that, you know, the team I had on K2 was just phenomenal. We were super lucky, you know, everything seemed to come together and again, I've made lifelong friends there. So, um, K2, to answer your question, certainly one gazillion percent lives up to the hype of being the most dangerous mountain. Um, and I hate to say in the world, but uh, it, it, I've never, I like to sort of have a relationship with a mountain and I like to sort of feel like, okay, do you want me to be here today? Like, how are we, you know, I think of myself as working with a mountain when I climb. I never, I know it doesn't make sense to me when I hear people say they conquered a mountain because I just don't think that's how it works. I think that, you know, anytime we're in nature, we're like working together um, with our surroundings. And so K2, um, I just never felt super welcome on that mountain, by the mountain. I felt like it was constantly trying to kill me. I felt like, you know, there were avalanches and rockfall and other deaths and, it felt just very um, dangerous <laughs> every day. And every day um, I wanted to quit. And, you know, there were moments, I remember a moment climbing what's called the Black Pyramid, which is a section of just really chunky rock um, at about 25,000 feet and being like it just felt every movement of my body felt so arduous. And I remember thinking, I don't think I can do this. Like, I'm just not sure that I can deliver what this mountain is asking of me. And I remember just looking back behind me and there's, you know, just, it's very exposed. I could see all the way down to base camp. And I was thinking like, I could, like I could get down there, right? I could, wouldn't be easy, but I could reverse my direction on this rope. I could start descending. I could be back to base camp tomorrow. I could be like, 
eating cake, like sleeping, you know, in an actual like proper tent. Um, I can be back in Islamabad in a few days in a hotel, taking a nice bubble bath. (laughs) I just let myself um, sort of, you know, sit in that fantasy of, of quitting and what that would feel like. And, you know, I, I remember then just telling myself, like, just take, you know, one more movement on this mountain, just lift your hand one more time to the next rock. And I just started to tell myself every time I moved, um, I would repeat the words, I'm strong. And I just kept doing it over and over And that, you know, was sort of the only thing in my mind. I let that belief that I was strong erase that, you know, desire to quit. And I'm very happy I did because, you know, above that point on the Black Pyramid, um, it's mostly snow, you know, dangerous snow that's very avalanche prone. But um, I'm much more comfortable on on steep snow than I am on steep rock. And so... um, you know, getting past what for me was sort of the crux was, it was tough in that moment. And and I, you know, I was very close to turning around. What do you think just kept you going in that moment? Because, you know, I, 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 I think a lot of us are there on adventures, especially, is it just thinking back through all the other experiences? Obviously this wasn't on the seven summits list, so you didn't like need to get it for that project, but I assume you, this in a way was even more important. Yeah, I think it was more important. And, you know, there was a bit of ego involved. I have to be honest. And like, there was certainly ego associated with, you know, I I had a climbing sponsor at that point. Um, I'd made it very public that I was doing this. And, and I don't know that that's a positive thing, but I have to be honest that there was, there was a bit of ego in that decision I think there was also this desire to just continue to prove what I was capable of uh, in the mountains. And I, when I left for Pakistan to climb K2, um, I wasn't a hundred percent confident that I could climb it successfully. I, you know, been through, I'll say the word, you know, I, my climbing coach had stopped working with me because he believed that I was climbing above my ability and attempting K2. And, you know, he had sort of been this like secret magical ingredient I felt to my success in the mountains. And so I'd had to, you know, train myself, which turned out to be a blessing, but, you know, the moment in the moment was very, um, it made me question what I was capable of. And I had, you know, interviewed and talked to a lot of people who had summited K2 or attempted K2 and they're all like, yeah, I don't know. It's a big, tough, dangerous, deadly mountain. I don't, you know, I just didn't have a lot of support. And there was this little tiny (laughs) belief or voice or spark inside of me that said like, you can do this. And when I left for Pakistan, I remember telling myself, I am just going to, I'm going to go and I'm going to give it my best and I'm going to listen to my body and, you know, not climb above my ability, not get myself into anything that I can't get out of. And I felt like in that moment on the Black Pyramid where I so badly wanted to turn around, I was letting myself down more than anything else because I was, you know, I was ignoring that little belief inside of me that thought that I could do it. 
And that was, that was more important than the ego part of that decision. But it's ultimately what pushed me to keep going that day. It was just this little belief that I could do it and that it was, you know, I was just afraid and I was scared and I was more resilient. I knew than those things and more capable than those things. And I was able to keep pushing if I just focused on what I could do. And how good did that feel to get up and summit that mountain? <laughs> it, yeah, that is a crazy feeling, you know? So a few days later, we attempted the summit and, um, we had almost aborted our climb because of weather and conditions on the mountains. Um, so it was very sort of emotional, like, are we going, are we not? Which, which is so common in high altitude mountaineering because there's so many factors that are uncontrollable. Um, but we, you know, I remember lying in the tent at high camp with, you know, two other men, one on either side of me, I was in the middle of the tent, just getting myself ready for the summit and feeling like, this is your shot. Like, you know, this is, this is what you came for. This is what you've trained for. And, you know, leaving for the summit that night, um, in the dark is maybe nine or 10 PM. And, you know, there's this very famous feature, uh, on K2 on the, you know, summit day where you have to climb under a giant Ciroc. So as a Ciroc is this, you know, glaciers are constantly moving down mountains and when they encounter terrain that's <clears throat> steeper or some feature that changes, they often break. And, you know, so this giant Ciroc that does occasionally break um, off of this point in 2008, it very famously broke when people were climbing and killed, I think, 11 people. Um, and I, I'm climbing, it's dark, and I know that that Ciroc is up there <laughs> and you can't really, you can't see it but I can feel it. I can feel there's just this looming sort of mass above me. And, you know, it's bigger than a house. And I start to realize that my headlamp is not as bright as everyone else's. And I, you know, sort of assess it, like look off in the distance to see how far I can see, try to ignore it, <laughs> try to like will it to go away. Um, Eventually I have to stop and, you know, it was all good mountaineers. I had a fresh set of batteries um, close to my body in my down suit, fiddle with thick gloves and, you know, minus 10 temperatures to try to replace those batteries, get it working again, um, start climbing with my team again. And the same thing happens maybe 20 minutes later. And I don't have a spare anymore. <laughs> and I don't, at that point, I wasn't carrying a spare headlamp with me. Um, and I know that I'm about to, you know, encounter this point of the future where, or point of the mountain where I'm under the Ciroc and I have to traverse to the left <clears throat> under it. And that traverse is, you know, there's a wall of ice to my right. I'm walking to the left and the path is, less than one boot print boot width wide. And so, you know, sort of seeing what I can see through other people's headlamps and watching snow fall off and knowing there's just a couple miles of air, you know, beneath you if you fall there and the anchors didn't hold you would certainly die. 
And I, I need to rely on my team at this point. If I'm, I cannot climb across this traverse without the benefit of eyesight. And so thankfully, you know, Rob Smith, uh, who I will forever be grateful for, um, had a spare set of batteries and helped me change them. And I was able to ascend and continue climbing. But you asked about, so that was sort of the flavor of how Summit Day started out, Summit Night started out for me. It was not not very smooth. You know, I had felt like I had all these obstacles that I had to just keep one after another, like <clears throat> working through. Um, but I remember light, you know, it had gotten light out. It was morning and looking up and I was by myself on um, a slope of pretty powdery snow, which, you know, if you've ever ascended that kind of snow, it's super frustrating. You know, now I'm at, you know, 28,000 feet breathing bottled oxygen. Um, but nonetheless, you know, you take one step up and you just slide back three and you take another step up and you slide back. It's just incredibly physically and mentally taxing. And I stopped for a second and looked up and I could see, you know, bright colors of people's down suits. And I was like, oh my God, that's the summit. Like it's right there. And I remember telling myself not to cry, <laughs> just keep it together. <laughs> like it's only halfway and you're not even there yet. Um, just keep, you know, put your head down and just keep moving forward. And eventually, you know, I don't know, an hour later, maybe stood on the summit and that I, I kind of have a no celebrate rule on, on most summits, especially big mountains, because maybe it was Ed Beasters, someone very famously said, it's only halfway. Like there's a lot of work to do to get back down to safety. And, you know, most accidents occur on the descent. I had um, studied that mountain, created a spreadsheet and a pivot table of every single death um, and how and when they occurred and where. And so I knew that, you know, it was if something bad was going to happen, it was probably going to happen going down. But I did let myself get a little bit emotional on the top of that summit, in part because I had so my about a year after I was dosed, diagnosed with cancer, my father was diagnosed with lung cancer and died um, right after I got home from Everest. And I carried his ashes with me, you know, as you do on every single mountain, which is sort of you know, my dad never traveled anywhere. He spent most of his life in central Illinois. And so to be able to like travel to these exotic places and, you know, leave a little bit of him there was very meaningful. <clears throat> um, but the, I remember fiddling with his ashes that were in a, like a pill bottle. And that, you know, that was the last of the ashes um, that I had of him. I threw into the air above, uh, above Pakistan that day, which is a very special moment for obviously many reasons, but he was always so proud of what I could accomplish in the mountains, but so terrified <laughs> also because it's, you know, he just couldn't, having never <clears throat> really traveled to the mountains, he couldn't really grasp what it's those dangers were. You know? Yeah, totally unfathomable. And then you, you know, he would like watch you know, like the Everest movie and be like, oh my God, you're going to be sliding down. The, you know, it's over-dramatized. So his, most of his 
input was like over traumatization of, of climbing. But um, that summit, just to get back to your question about the feeling, that was by far, and I hope always, the best feeling of being on top of a mountain that I've had. And, um, you know, the descent was not simple or easy either, but um, I'm glad that I took a moment there to just be like, to celebrate a little bit and to really feel grateful for having made it that far. Wow. Amazing story. Really took us into the experience. That was wild. (laughs) So that was back in 2018. Yes. And I would assume that it was probably pandemic that, that slowed you down for the next few years. But you finished it out, you rounded it out with, some say an equally difficult mountain, Mount Kosciuszko in Australia. And I'm just kidding. I'm pretty sure you can like push a stroller to the top. Um, tell, did you allow yourself to celebrate on that summit, even though you're only halfway? <laughs> so funny story about that mountain. Um, so I, at the time, actually had a corporate job. Um, which I was very grateful for during the pandemic. And I, you know, was a part of a project that took me to Australia to work for a couple months. And I didn't, it was a you know, very super stressful project. I didn't have a lot of free time, but I had this one weekend that, you know, that was my one shot to summit Kosciuszko. And it's about a six hour drive from Sydney. I've never driven on the other side of the road. I was like, I'm like probably going to kill myself getting there as opposed to like, you know, actually. Have, so it was the most dangerous mountain. It probably, yeah. It, in some respects it was. I was so overprepared. I think I, like I had, you know, five layers of clothes with me. I had like crampons for some really silly reason. I was like, there is no freaking way that I am not climbing to the top of this mountain today. And of course, you know, for people listening, it's, it's basically a hike. Um, <clears throat> there's a ski resort there. I remember, you know, I started hiking from the village and I didn't see any people. And I remember like, who's going to take my summit photo from the only person up there? Like, this is kind of important. And, you know, then I hike up to the um, gondola and there's just, it's like Disneyland then so many people. Um, I, you know, was so determined to get up to that summit and I carried um, a tiny little bottle of champagne and there were probably 50 people, up, 50 strangers up there. I asked a woman to take my photo. I'm sure she was like, why is this woman celebrating, you know, hiking up here with a bottle of champagne? <laughs> Um, so it was, it's sort of funny now to think about, you know, being so ridiculously overprepared and, um, it was a bit, um, you know, just because it was COVID, I, I was, I had envisioned traveling there with like my sister, like, you know, having people around me to celebrate and it just wasn't possible because of COVID. Um, so it was just, it was, I was super grateful and it was kind of, surreal to finish it and then just be like I hiked back down to the village and had a nice dinner and then I drove back to work the next day <laughs> it was very weird that is so wild so. how was your how you being on a zoom with your team how was your how was your hike yeah great exactly. I finished the seven yeah. summits <laughs> hey boss can I go 
<laughs> drive to to the mountain to finish the seven summits. Good lord, right. that is hilarious. Yeah. It was weird. The whole thing was weird. I believe it. Yeah. Well, well, really, way to like hedge your bets on finishing it successfully too. To not leave like the hardest one for the last one. Um, right. We have about five minutes left. I was going to ask you: Is is there one of the seven summits? I know K two is special. Very special. Was there one that was just different than the others besides Australia Summit? Because that's obviously very different than the rest. Was there one that just sticks out as is maybe a little more special? Yeah, I would say for me that was Denali, <clears throat> the highest point in North America. Um, I summited it, I believe, in 2012. And I <clears throat> excuse me. For me, that was, you know, I knew there's a lot of lore for me. There was a lot of lore around Denali and I knew it was going to be challenging primarily because I'm, you know, I, I weighed 120 pounds, um, today and probably back then weighed a little bit less. And, you know, the sort of cool thing about Denali is that, you know, you have to carry or pull all of your gear. You know, there's no, there are no porters or no Sherpa there to help you. And, I knew that, you know, hauling that amount of weight around um, was going to be really hard. And I, you know, I'm always determined not to be the weakest link on my team. And so I had just, you know, I remember at one point like hiking and pulling a sled, um, you know, just in like in my neighborhood and it weighed 102 pounds of, you know, just like, that's what my training was like. It was super intense and, um, so I think for me, having summited that mountain, um, it really, it was really special because I knew I was working so hard to, to contribute to my team in a positive way. I never wanted to be like, oh, I can't carry, you know, that same amount of weight as the guys on my team. I was the only woman. Um, I wanted to be, you know, on equal footing with everybody else and contribute in a positive way. And, I, you know, I feel like I did that, but it was, it was a lot of, that was probably that in K2, where I would say were the toughest like training um, that I had to do for any mountain. And so that made it special, I think, that I had to work so hard. That's really interesting. Really awesome. Beautiful mountain. Um, yeah. I hear a lot of a lot of great things about it. <laughs> um, yeah. That's really cool. So so for someone, I know we got to wrap up. I'm, I'm sorry, because um, I want to ask a few more questions, but What's next for you for someone that completes seven summits? What's, what's, what's a goal now? Yeah. So, you know, now a book um, called Finding Elevation, which will be released in January uh, on the 10th of January. So folks can check that out. You can pre-order now on Amazon, or um, if you go to my website, lisaclimbs.com, I'll send you like the first couple chapters. You can get an early peek at that. Um, for me, climbing wise, um, I, I really don't aspire to do anything more difficult than K2. I'm very happy to make that my proverbial mic drop. Um, but I am, you know, what's important to me now is to just give back. Like I've gotten so much from the mountains and the communities in Nepal and Pakistan where I've spent a lot of time climbing. And so along with a couple of um, friends, female friends who are climbers, we're organizing an all-women's expedition um, in Nepal for this October. We're going to climb a 6,000-meter peak called Cholatsi. 
And we're um, using that as a fundraiser to support women's education in Nepal, um, which, you know, when I started to dig into it, it was just shocking to me. Like, I, you know, I feel grateful that I've had um, the education that I have and that it's gotten me a lot of places. Um, and it's not true for a lot of women in the world, um, especially in Nepal, where I think the stat is that, you know, for women over the age of 15, 85% of them have not had any sort of formal education. And so we want to start to, to impact that in a positive way. Um, and so we think it's important to prove what women can do in the mountains, not that we don't like guys, but that, um, you know, so we're organizing an all-women's team. We have a great Sherpani Sirdar, um, and that's our plan for this fall. Awesome. Well, we will be excited to follow mm-hmm. along with that. This will probably be coming out close to that time. So it'll be pretty timely there. But Lisa, I wanted to thank you for jumping on. There's a few more questions I'd love to ask, but fortunately I got to run. But thank you so much for spending time with us and telling us some of these stories. Thanks, Mason. Thanks for having me. It was really a lot of fun to chat. First of all, Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.